Hello, story lovers. I'm Laurel McCarg, and you're listening to, and if you're watching on YouTube, Alligator Preserves. In today's episode, I'm going to introduce you to award-winning author Kathleen Casca, who has some stories to share. So don't go away. Welcome to Alligator Preserves, a weekly podcast about revealing yourself through storytelling, story reading, and story writing, but probably not story arithmetic because that's not a thing. You just might surprise yourself with the secrets you'll uncover. All righty, Kathleen, you come Hello. to me from Washington? Yes, Anacortes, Washington, uh, near Seattle. What's the weather like this morning? Because I'm talking to you from Leadville, Colorado, where it's been extraordinarily cold. Well, it's extraordinarily cold here, too, for us. Uh, we have a few inches of snow. It's uh, 20 degrees, which is unusual because we're right on the water. But um, it's beautiful, but cold, and driving can be kind of scary. <laughs> I, I bet places that aren't used to having tons and tons of snow, as we are, kind of shut down, don't they? I mean, we, we never close school here in Leadville because people just know how to drive on packed snow on the streets. <laughs> right. That, that's not the case here. School is sometimes closed, but it's just, you know, people not being used to driving is what is what scares me Dangerous. about getting out there. <laughs> Dangerous. Well, Kathleen... My listeners out there are typically readers and love stories, and I just recently read your novel, A Two-Horse Town, and I got to tell you, I really, really enjoyed it. This is your latest book, correct? Yes, that's true. Would you introduce yourself to our audience? Tell us a little bit more about you and your involvement in the publishing world. Okay. I have been, uh, I published my first book in 1996, and uh, I published a mystery trivia series, and uh, then I went on to publish my, publish uh, actual mysteries. Uh, Kate Carraway, the series that uh, includes A Two-Horse Town and Run, Dog, Run, is my second series, and uh, it features an animal rights activist, Kate Carraway, and each book deals with an animal rights issue. My other series is uh, set in the 1950s, and it's lighthearted and humorous. Uh, it's my Sydney Lockhart mystery series, and uh, each mystery takes place in a different historic hotel. And I've also written nonfiction. Uh, besides the trivia books, I have a book out on writing tips. And then I've also published a book, uh, a biography on the man, the ornithologist who saved the whooping cranes from extinction. So birds are a passion of mine. So, you know, I write a lot of different things, but uh, basically I'm into mysteries. You, you mentioned mystery trivia. What's mystery trivia? Well, I have a mystery trivia book on Agatha Christie, one on Sherlock Holmes, and one on Alfred Hitchcock. And uh, the book, for instance, uh, Sherlock Holmes, I have mystery or I have quizzes on each of Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes short stories and novels. And then I also include a lot of information about movies and radio shows and TV programs that deal with Holmes. 
there's a lot of background information in each of the trivia quizzes, like how Coonan Doyle came up with his ideas. So it the books are called Triviography. So it's a combination of trivia and biography. And those are kind of, that's what got my foot in the door. And that those books have been out. They were first published in the late 90s. Uh, they were picked up by another publisher in 2012. And now, as of today, the Sherlock Holmes, it looks like it's going to be picked up with a larger press. So I'm real excited. Oh, congratulations. And that's, that, that's such a unique genre, really. I, I hadn't heard of it. So congratulations on that. That's really exciting. And for those of us who grew up on those kinds of books and stories, that's awesome. I'll ha- I will have links to these, to your works on oh, my good. website after we're good. finished here. So tell me, why an animal rights mystery series? What is it in your own background that set you up to be, I'm assuming that you are an animal rights activist? Well, I am. When I first decided to start writing mysteries, I wanted to write a series that supported a cause because I'm really into animal rights and animal rescue. And when I was living in Austin, I used to be a member of Wildlife Rescue. So we we were a group of volunteers that uh, took in orphaned and injured wildlife and took care of them with the intention of releasing them into the wild. So from that experience, I thought, hmm, that would be good to have my protagonist an animal rights activist. And so it just grew from there. What from your childhood might have turned you into an animal rights activist or not not turned you into, but there must have been something from your childhood that drew you to the cause of animals. Well, I grew up in a small town in central Texas and both of my grandparents, my grand, my grandparents on my father and my mother's side had big farms. So I spent a lot of time out in the country, a lot of time observing animals. I can't say that I was the type of person that would bring them home and raise them when I was little, because I just had a sense that that wasn't what I was supposed to do. So when I came across wildlife, I would just kind of study it and just enjoy it. And so, you know, I spent as much as I time as I could outdoors. And I guess that's where it stemmed from. You know, what else are you going to do in a small town of 2,500? <laughs> so I just enjoy the outdoors and enjoyed observing wildlife, which also got me interested in birds. Okay. What or who inspired you to write? Oh, gosh. There were and still are a lot of authors. Of course, Agatha Christie. I've read everything she's written several times. So she was a big inspiration. And then for the Sydney Lockhart series, uh, I was inspired by Janet Ivanovich's Stephanie Plum series. Oh, my gosh. It's a strong female character. I like the humor. And that's what inspired me to try my hand at writing a similar character. And I wasn't sure if I could write humor, but uh, I surprised myself. It was easy to get started on Sydney Lockhart. It was like she just appeared one day and said, okay, let me tell you my story. And as far as the uh, Kate Carraway series, I was inspired by Nevada Barr's Anna Pigeon series. Each of her books takes place in a different national park. 
and uh, there's a murder and, you know, so forth. And so I like that concept. And that was my inspiration to start the Kate Carraway series. I also love reading the classics. I love Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett and Nero Wolfe and the hard-boiled detective writers. And in fact, I've just finished our hard-boiled detective story that I'm just kind of holding and see what I'm going to do with it. But uh, it was fun. It was something completely different. But I really enjoyed that genre. So I write what I write. I write what I like to read. And I read a lot of mysteries, and I and I find a, a genre that I like, and I thought, okay, maybe I can try my hand at this. So, you know, that's that's what that's where the inspiration comes from. I love I love that idea, and I'm definitely going to have to read your Sydney Lockhart series because Janet Ivanovich is just so funny and so entertaining, and and I, I love that genre as well. And I love that you are trying different genres. I myself am trying to write in just about every genre before you know before I leave this earth because why not it's a challenge and as as authors we should challenge ourselves yeah anyone anyone personal that you that you know or knew said you got to start writing or or did you have a teacher or someone who when did you know that you could write or that you were a writer you know who who personally you to do well, it. I didn't know that I could write until I started. I was teaching school at the time, and uh, once I got that under my belt and had more time, then I decided to try my hand at writing. It was just something that I wanted to see if I can do, but I didn't have any idea on how to start. So I was in Austin, and I joined the Austin Writers League. I took creative writing classes. I uh, joined Sisters in Crime. And so a lot of those writers that were a part of that were an inspiration to me. And so when I started writing, I decided, okay, I'm just going to try my hand at a lot of different things. And then the ball just started rolling. I was a science teacher. So uh, I ended up writing some uh, science chapters in, in a textbook. Then I was also interested in travel writing, so I sold some travel articles, and I became a a staff writer for a magazine in town. So I just wrote whatever I felt like I could try. And then when I took a break after 17 years of teaching, and my husband and I moved to the San Juan Islands so I could devote my time to writing, and that's when I started writing the mysteries. And then I joined writers groups and I hung out with other writers and they were a great inspiration. And in the first two years I was there, I wrote four mysteries. I had two plays produced. I wrote uh, several travel articles. So I just tried whatever I could. So, and then it got the ball rolling. And it just kept, it's just kept rolling out of you. Well, a two horse town is your latest novel. Would you read a passage from from it? Sure. Uh, I'm going to read uh, the first few paragraphs. What I what I set out to do when I wrote started writing the Kate Carraway series is to really focus on the setting of the book. I want my readers to be able to envision where this takes place and possibly want to even go there. So this book, A Two Horse Town, takes place in the Prior Mountains in Montana. And uh, so that's where I'll start. Okay. 
Fumbling her way in the dark, Kate Carraway climbed hand over hand, scaling boulders that seemed to trail off into oblivion. One wrong step meant a fast return to the bottom of the canyon. Too late to turn back, she had no choice but to trust her guide and follow the sounds of her boots crunching gravel. To make matters worse, clouds that had blocked out the glow of a full moon were now starting to dissipate, creating beams of unwelcome light. Kate pressed her body against the steep rock and, keeping her head down, reached for the ledge above. Scree crumbled in her grasp and pelled to the brim of her cap. She heaved herself up to the next boulder. A sudden gust of wind threatened to send her over the edge. Her head spun. She slowly inhaled, visualizing oxygen flowing deep into her abdomen, the way her yoga teacher had taught. It was late spring in Montana, but winter had not yet released its hold. Snow whitened the highest peaks of the prior mountains, and unpredictable cold fronts dropped temperatures to deadly lows. Despite the cold, Kate's skin grew clammy, dampening her innermost layer of clothing. Here we are, Ida said, sounding less winded than Kate. Watch your footing, honey. Scooch up next to me. Kate looked up to see Ida already seated, her skinny little legs dangling over the precipice. She resembled one of the spindly scrub oaks that grew tenaciously from the mountains. Not willing to show her fear to this 82-year-old woman, Kate crawled to the edge of the cliff and reluctantly joined her guide. A vast, empty space opened up before her, and Kate took another deep breath of cold night air. The dizziness subsided. Take a look at what nature gave me. What did I tell you? The best time to see the horses is during a full moon. Ida motioned for Kate to move closer. I never thought you, of all people, would be afraid of heights. Is it that obvious, Kate said? I heard your teeth chattering all the way up. You sounded like a hungry woodpecker going at a sweet gum. We're only about a hundred feet up. The height I can handle, Kate said. It's the sheer drop-off that scares the piss out of me. She tried to relax, but sitting here on the edge of the cliff caused her phobia to obliterate all reason. She wished she could ignore the scat, scant inches of rock that separated her from the abyss that ended with the canyon floor. The wind kicked up and the clouds separated again. Light from a full moon reflected lightly, brightly on the canyon below. In the distance, the outline of the prior mountains rose into the sky, creating a jagged silhouette on their horizon and adding an ominous feeling to the evening. Kate gripped the rock on which she sat and questioned her insanity. The only time I've ever been to Montana was when my husband Jack and I drove the High Line across the northern part of the state, where it was flat and wide, Kate said. Nothing like this. This is the real Montana. We have steep cliffs and bottomless canyons, Ida chuckled, and we like it that way. <laughs> have you been to Montana? Yes, I have. And yes, I am terrified of heights. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that, that was that was a question that I was going to ask you uh, in, in a little bit. You talk about um, a, a main character's fear, and in the first Kate Carraway book, Run Dog Run, you said that her fear was failure. The main character's fear was failure. In this book, is it heights? I mean, is it is it more than just failing a, a mission? 
Well, uh, there is a subplot that runs through the entire series, and that involves her fear of failure because she has just before the beginning of the first book, the background information, she was forced to leave her uh, wildlife rescue facility in Africa because of some trouble she had gotten into. And that's why she came back to the United States. And she carries a lot of emotional baggage because of that. And she feels that she failed. She failed herself, her husband, her, her staff. And so she's having to deal with that. Now, that background story unfolds throughout the whole series. So she's trying to make up for the problems that she caused in the at the beginning of the first book. Ah. This, this book, A Two-Horse Town... She's got to really challenge herself because because of the fear of heights and because of being in the prior mountains. She's I put her in a situation where she actually has to drive down steep, winding, switchback roads. And she doesn't have a choice, and she's got to deal with that. So I can really put the fear into my writing because I experienced that. In, in my travels, there was there was never an emergency, but just being on these switchback roads in the mountains was just enough to. It's horrifying. It's horrifying, it even horrifying. for people, even for people who aren't afraid of heights. And I, I've got to tell you, your switchback chasing. Oh my gosh, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> that wow. was based on on a real experience. That road that I described in that scene actually is not in the prior mountains but it's in Utah on the way to the uh, Four Corners Monument. Okay. And I don't know if, if you've heard of the Valley of the Gods. Yes. Yes. It was a road that yeah. wound down to the Valley of the Gods, and I, I, it just seemed to take a 1,000 years to get down that road, even though it was only about three miles. But, yeah, that, that's, that's where that scene comes from is my experience traveling down this road. All right. Well, in your intro reading there, you introduce us to Ida, the 82-year-old scrappy, scrawny, feisty, crazy woman. I absolutely love Ida and her counterweight twin sister, Veda. Just such a beautiful, beautiful relationship between those two characters. Is Ida someone you know? Because Ida is someone I know. I knew this scrappy old 80-ish uh, old Army Nurse Corps colonel who was a friend of mine. And I, I, every time Ida spoke or did something, I, I saw my friend Ginny Knox. Who was Ida for you? Well, Ida is totally imaginary, but that doesn't make her any less real. My husband and I were dr driving around through the Ozarks, and uh, we'd gotten lost. And pulled over to the side of the road and he was driving and I was just kind of daydreaming and he was looking at the map. And then my mind just, just started going. And all of a sudden I see this elderly woman come in and knock on the window and I rolled down my window and she introduced herself. And she said, I'm not going to tell you exactly what she said because that would spoil the ending of the book. Yeah. But she pretty much said, here's my story and you need to write it. Oh. And by the time we got back to the hotel, I had the whole the whole idea for a two-horse town in my mind. And uh, she just appeared to me uh, in her crazy outfit and her strong personality. And as I started writing the book, 
I just felt like, you know, she had become one of my closest friends. Well, she is absolutely memorable. And I, I think anyone reading your book will probably know someone that she reminds them of. I, uh, incredible. I just absolutely loved her. What's your writing routine like? Well, uh, I mainly write in the morning. I'm a morning person. So I get up and, and I write early in the morning before I go out and, and run. And then I work in the afternoon. I have a part-time job working for a publishing company. And I write on the weekends. So uh, that's mainly my schedule. It's not a strict schedule. If I have deadlines, then I will add more writing time in my day. But typically, it's in the morning. Okay. For those of you just joining us, we are talking with Kathleen Casca, author of A Two-Horse Town, which is the second book in the K. Caraway series, the first book being Run, Dog, Run. And she has all kinds of other books out there too. So I'll have, I'll have links to your material in my, on, on my website at leadvillelaurel.com. I listened to an interview that you did last year, and you confessed that you're a pantser. Now, for those of you who haven't heard of the term, a pantser is someone who writes by the seat of their pants. They're not really a planner. Everyone says that you're either a planner or a pantser. Now, of course, you can be both. You can be a planter, which I think I've turned into. <laughs> but you really said that you're a pantser. And after reading A Two-Horse Town, and all the characters that you have in there. Holy mackerel, you have a lot of characters in there and a lot of things going on. How did you keep track of them? Well, when I, when I start write when I write nonfiction, I do write from an outline. But when I write fiction, I tried to write from an outline. It just didn't work. I just had to start writing and, and see what unfolded. That's a lot of fun. You know, I enjoy it. But about two-thirds into the book, I have to make everything come together. And that's where the real work starts. And so what I do to keep everything straight is I read it over and over again. I take notes. I After you, I, after you complete it. After you complete it, you read it over and over again? No, about two-thirds into it, I start reading it. Because sometimes I change my mind in which direction I'm going to go. And so I have to make note of that and just read it over and over again, take notes, summarize my scenes, and then, then there, and then really start pulling everything together. Sometimes I take a different route if I feel it's not going to work. But that's, that's where the hard part uh, begins. The first two-thirds, I can get through that in just a couple of months. And then it might take me several months after that to decide which route I want to take, uh, make all the loose ends come together, and Often when I, well, not often, just about every time I start, I don't know who the killer is and I don't know the ending. I just kind of wait for my characters to take what? me to, yeah. Seriously? <laughs> yes, yes. Well, that's startling and surprising. Well, it is, but it's, it's a good surprise because, you know, I have ideas of who I think the killer should be. And then all of a sudden he or she just shows up and I went, oh, it's, it's, you know, it's a surprise. It's like, oh, yeah, this works a lot better. You're right. Talk about surprise characters that show up while you're writing. I think you mentioned in, your, in a prior interview that sometimes a surprise character will just show up. Yes, that's true. In my next Kate Carraway book called Eagle Crossing, it takes place in a, uh, on the San Juan Islands near where I live now. 
And my husband and I were driving around Lopez Island. That's where I get a lot of my ideas when I'm riding around with my husband. And this character was real. But then I, I thought, oh, when I first saw her and heard her, I thought, oh, my gosh, I've got to put her in the book. We were riding around, and here was this woman standing by her old trailer. She had on a pair of orange tights and a pink T-shirt, and her hair was all everywhere. And her husband was walking down the hill from their trailer to an old beat-up Cadillac, and she starts throwing rocks at him. Oh, just cussing. You know, I, if you don't pick up the kids from school today, I swear that I'm not going to be here when you get back and just on and on and on. I thought, oh, my God, this woman is wonderful. So uh, I wrote her into the book and uh, she's kind of like Ida. You know, she's one of these characters that people just really connect with, even though she's odd and she's appalling. People just connect with her. So Paula shows up in uh, the next Kate Carraway book, which will hopefully be out in about 16 months. Oh, that's very exciting. Would you read another passage for us? Sure, sure. If you have a favorite one. Yeah. And, and I love the idea of characters showing up and, and being uh, surprising you. Uh, my husband, Mike, and I were in Utah at Moab, and we were getting ready to put into the Colorado River. And uh, there was a man there with his dog, not on a leash, which has been an, always an issue of mine. And this man was talking to no one around him, but he was talking and going on and on and on. And, and he was saying some very crazy things. So I decided that I needed to use him as a character in my Water White series. And so he, he shows up in book two and, and he becomes a surprise in, in book three because my husband made a suggestion to me about his characteristics. And so it's wonderful when you find characters like that and you're not sure where or how, but you know that they're going to make it into some of your work. Right. That, that, that's a lot of fun when that happens. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Kate sat on the porch with an ice pack on her ankle. As she watched the coroner's van drive away, she wondered if her stay in two-horse would be as menacing as last night's storm. The rising sun illuminated the rock she had climbed last night. It loomed over Ida's property and seemed to rise up from the depths of the earth like the hull of a ship. She couldn't believe she'd let Ida talk her into climbing a mountain in the middle of the night, full moon or not. Despite the dire circumstances, Kate had to smile at the scene unfolding in front of Ida's cabin. Circling the sheriff's patrol car, the Springfield dog pack growled and sniffed their disapproval. The largest male, a brown short-haired mutt, sprayed all four tires for, and, for good measure, attempted to raise his leg on the sheriff's pants. The sheriff removed his cowboy hat and swatted at the dogs, which seemed to agitate them even more. Ida stood with her foot propped on the bumper of the patrol car, arms folded over her knees. She looked like a rodeo clown who had just rolled out of a barrel. The pant legs of her jeans were tucked into the tops of a pair of scruffy purple cowboy boots. An old orange knit sweater, which stretched loosely over her thin frame, hung down just above her knees. The left sleeve minus its elbow revealed a plaid shirt underneath. Mashed tightly on her head, Ida wore a Doc Holliday-style hat with a rattlesnake band. Stuck in the band was a large turkey feather. What struck Kate as odd was that Ida and the sheriff seemed to be having a neighborly chat. 
Finally, Ida slapped him on the back and cackled some parting words. She walked back into the cabin and joined Kate on the porch. Ida removed her hat and scratched her head. I'm surprised it took so long. This is murder, Ida. They have to be thorough, Kate said. She lifted the dripping ice bag from the towel draped over her ankle and managed to draw a full circle with her foot with much less pain than a few hours before. That's not what I'm talking about, Ida said. I'm talking about killing the bastard. I'm surprised it took someone so long to bump him off. <laughs> I, I love how you portray the dogs too in, in Ida's home. They're just, they're wonderful. They're very doggy. Um, you have a lot of different motivations going on in this from a lot of different characters. And I'm, I'm wondering, do you have any personal experience with Native American tribes? Because that's one of the issues that comes up. No, I, I really don't except just visiting some places like um, my husband and I were in Pine Ridge. Uh, we visited the site of Wounded Knee, which was a very, very emotional experience for me. And so, you know, it's like I'm always interested and in, for supporting the underdog and the unfortunates. And I feel that the Native Americans really got a bad deal. And so there's a lot of passion there, although that's experienced mostly vicariously. And you mentioned other motivations. I was surprised when I started writing that there would be so much mention of Catholicism in the book. Kate struggles with that as well. I was born and raised Catholic, and I'm surprised at all at some of those feelings coming into the book, but Kate struggles with that. And uh, so I put that in the book. And I'm also interested in, my husband and I are interested in baseball. We're a big baseball fans. So mm -hmm. I had to write that into the book. Kate's husband is a retired catcher for the Chicago Cubs. So I wanted to include something about baseball because that's also a passion of mine. Those were fun little interactions there with her husband. And, and as I said, so many different motivations. I think so many people out there will enjoy your book on lots of different levels. What's next for Kate Carraway? You mentioned Eagle Crossing. How many yes. more books do you think will be in, in this series? Well, I'm not sure. As long as I enjoy writing her, I will I will keep it up. Eagle Crossing takes place, uh, like I said, on Lopez Island. And Kate visits an old friend who actually runs a wildlife rescue facility there on the island. And so, you know, that's that's my next one. Right now, I have an idea where I want to set the fourth one, which I'm not going to say because that's going to be a surprise. But uh, right now I'm working on the fifth Sydney Lockhart series. I'm, I'm getting that finished. And so it just, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do next. Like I said, I want to, I want to get that uh, hard boiled detective novel out there. So we'll, we'll see what happens. All right. But you can't finish your Sydney Lockhart series until you come to Leadville, Colorado and stay at the Delaware hotel, which is haunted. And oh. Because if you know anything about Leadville, we're an old mining town, yes. mining town, and Horace Tabor and, and all kinds of famous people have been here. And um, I think you need to come visit Leadville, stay at the Delaware. The Delaware? Okay, the I'll Delaware, put that on my list. Put that on your list, the Delaware Hotel in Leadville, Colorado. Do um, I have to drive up any mountain roads? 
Oh, (laughs) (laughs) none like you portray in a two horse town. Okay. So, but you know, we do sit at 10,200 feet elevation here. So, well, I think I could handle it. I I think you could too. And And then I always, I have a tequila routine that I do as soon as I get down from a mountain road, I find the nearest bar and have two shots of tequila. We have plenty of bars in Leadville. (laughs) (laughs) We could make that happen. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, good. How many more books are waiting for you to write them? I mean, do you see that you're going to be, because like I'm thinking I'm not going to live long enough to write all the books that are in my head and all the ideas that I have. How about you? Oh, true. That's true. I have several others that I I started uh, mainly because I wanted to get them down on paper so I wouldn't forget them. I was thinking about setting a mystery in my hometown in central Texas. I was also playing with a quirky British detective story with a real quirky character. And then, oh gosh. And I was also, I have a... Um, a draft of a screenplay of the biography that I wrote. So that's in the back of my mind, getting that out and really doing something with it because it's, it's a fabulous story that I like to, I like to compare this man to Indiana Jones versus meets John J. Audubon because his life was just so amazing. And I could just really picture that on the big screen. So I would like to get back and, and do something with that screenplay so, yeah, there are a lot of ideas, and I, and I will not finish all of them, but that's okay. You know, the point is that I'm thinking, I'm creating, I'm getting them down, and, and they're there in a the document whenever I want to pull them up and work on them. So a, a writing tip to writers out there, authors out there, whenever you have an idea, I mean, you, you've got to get it down, right? You've got to get it somewhere. Right. Even if it means waking up in the middle of the night and writing down a few words. Yeah, you've got to get it down there or otherwise it's going to go away. And I look at those as, as creative gifts that are given to me. And I have to keep my mind open and accept them and, and not be worried about where they go, uh, but just get them down and know that I have them. I have a huge list of potential short story or novel titles. Do you get titles? Um, how do you get your titles? I do. Sometimes they, they just, you know, like, like my writing just come to me. Oh gosh. <laughs> you know, the mysteries that I was considered, considered writing in my hometown started with a title. I, I live in a little town called West, W-E-S-T. And the locals refer to it as West, comma, Texas. Because if you say you're from West Texas, people assume that you're from El Paso yeah, <laughs> or Amarillo or that area. So, you know, when, when somebody asks where we're from, we say West comma Texas. So that was the first title for the first book, West comma Texas. And I have a, a few chapters of that one written. And then I thought, oh, it would be nice to have the word West in each of the titles so the second book, I also have a few chapters of, and it's called West of Nowhere. Oh, I like so, those. Yeah. So, yeah, and, and, I, and I have a, a, doc, a file on my computer where I write down ideas for titles. My, my husband and I travel a lot, mainly by car, and 
he is really into baseball and so am I, but I'm also really into opera. So I thought, hmm, it might be nice to do some sort of travel log about our experiences uh, on the road and going to baseball parks and listening to opera. And I would call the book Baseball Opera. Hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So I do have some. All right. Go Red Sox. I have to just say that because I'm from Boston. Oh, okay. Well, you know, I like the Red Sox. I really do. <laughs> do you have a favorite book of that you've written already? Oh, already gosh. That's so, that's so hard to answer. Um, oh, gosh. The one that I'm really proud of, I mean, I'm proud of all of them, but the one that I'm just really happy that I wrote because I felt that it was something I needed to do was the biography, The Man Who Saved the Whooping Crane. He He's an incredible ornithologist. And when I, I wrote a few articles about him, and then I realized that he was forgotten for all his, his contributions that he was making. So I decided to write a book about him. And that book really, I really made a positive difference in the world of endangered whipping cranes. That book has gotten a lot of attention, and I feel like I really tuned in a lot of people to to the plight of this bird. As far as my mysteries, you know, when I'm when I'm looking back and I'm reading through one of them, for whatever reason, I think, oh, God, this is my favorite. And then I read another one, I thought, oh, this is my favorite. So it's really hard for me to choose. It's like, then, then don't. That's wonderful. It's wonderful to love your work, and I think it's okay to love your work. And I think we should love our work because otherwise we shouldn't put it out there, right? Right, right. <laughs> otherwise, why do it? You know. <laughs> right. Would you like to give a shout out to Black Opal Books? Yes, yes. Black Opal Books uh, publishes the Kate Caraway series, and yeah, a big shout out to them because they are a small but growing press and I love working with them because they're real amenable to author suggestions and uh, working with us and listening to our concerns and making changes so I feel that not only are they publishing my books but I have a really good working relationship with them in the business of publishing so yeah a big shout out for Black Opal Books check them out online they have they publish some great authors I will have a link to them as well. And uh, Kathleen Casca, author of A Two-Horse Town and so many other books, thank you for visiting Alligator Preserves today. This has been a wonderful, fun interview. I've really enjoyed it. And like I said, I'm I'm really looking forward to trying out your other series as well. And listeners out there today, you can find show notes with links and some photos on my website at leadbellaurel.com. And if you enjoyed this and other episodes, please subscribe to Alligator Preserves on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And consider maybe becoming a patron. Support the Alligator Preserves on Patreon. Check out the rewards you'll receive at patreon.com slash alligator preserves. And join me next time when I'll talk about something completely different. Now, Kathleen, do you eat toast in the morning at all? Uh, Yes, I do. Do you have a favorite preserve? Yes, uh, it's the National Wildlife Refuge uh, on the Texas coast. Aransas National Wildlife Refuge. (laughs) I should be more specific when I ask this question. Because I, alligator preserves, of course, is a ridiculous 
name and there's a story that goes behind it, uh, which is in my first episode. But I typically ask my interviewees what kind of preserves they spread on their toast. Oh, gosh, how funny. How funny. (laughs) Okay. All right. Well, I don't spread preserves on my toast, but I do spread peanut butter. Ah, peanut butter preserves. Stay away from the alligator (laughs) preserves. I heard they're dangerous. (laughs) Well, Kathleen, thanks again, and best of luck for all your millions of books that you have to come. Thank you. It was a pleasure. My pleasure as well. Bye. Bye. Alligator Preserves is hosted and produced by Laurel McCard, with technical support provided by her husband, Mike McCard. Follow her on her website at leadvillelaurel.com, where she writes about life, real, and imagined. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy her books. Find her work at amazon.com. Amazon.com.